As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Pod. Each week I'm joined by a selection of writers from the Athletic to bring you unrivaled access and insight into the biggest stories in football. I'm joined today by David Ornstein, Adam Crafton, the Athletic's Arsenal writer Art Roche, and later we'll also speak to our Chelsea writer Liam Toomey. The big game of the Premier League weekend uh, was obviously at the Emirates on Sunday. Chelsea beating Arsenal. 2-0, Romelu Lukaku looking ominously good. Oh, let me start with you then. For all the reasons why that might have been a weakened Arsenal team, the performance was, well, I was going to say dire, but certainly the first half performance was dire, wasn't it? Maybe it's slightly improved in the second. Yeah, I don't think many people took that much encouragement for the, from the second half performance either way because of what happened in the first. And yeah, you mentioned, I guess, the the amount of absences Arsenal had on the day, almost quite similar to the opening day against Brentford. But the thing that, that counteracts that is Arsenal's performances have been quite, okay, maybe not dire, as dire as it was against Chelsea yesterday, but they haven't been great in pre-season either against Chelsea or Tottenham. That was with Aubameyang and Lacazette in the side. Um, there were still those moments where they're struggling to break down low blocks, they're just very pedestrian and I think that's where a lot of I guess disappointment and frustration comes from Arsenal fans I mean even though I guess it was the first time that Emirates could have been at full capacity since the start of the pandemic uh, you could clearly see that it wasn't at full capacity and I think that's just been born out of yeah frustration and just not seeing progress that I guess fans would have wanted to see at this point of uh, Mikel Arteta's reign. Here's the thing for all of you, and, and Art, you go first on this, then we'll bring everybody else in. And this was a discussion that I was having with the, the, the former, we have to say this now, following Martin Tyler's comment on, uh, on on that first game, former Arsenal striker Ian Wright, he did used to play the game. So, uh, and which was those first two games, Brentford and Chelsea, Arsenal look like they haven't had a plan in either of those games. So that then that then comes down to three things. One, 
they're being sent out without a plan, which strikes me as utterly bizarre given Arteta's record against bigger clubs when he first took over. Secondly, they're being given a plan of the players, but then they're ignoring it. They aren't listening to it. Or thirdly, they're being given a plan and then aren't good enough to carry it out. All three of which are worrying in different ways. Yeah, I think it's probably closer to the third one because having watched Arsenal under Mikel Arteta, I think, well, for me personally anyway, I can kind of see what is trying to be done, but it's just way too predictable. So if people don't watch Arsenal every week, the the plan for most weeks is get the ball to Kieran Tierney. If you just watch the game and watch the positions of the players, Kieran Tierney is almost always as high as the left winger with Granite Xhaka trying to just cover behind him. And that is almost always the plan. It was against Brentford. That's what led uh, to Kieran Tierney being the person, the player with the most chances created on the opening weekend in the Premier League. But those chances weren't great chances. They were just crosses fizzed into the box where a load of Brentford players were. And that plan it wasn't really good enough. I think Martin Erdegaard would help ease that strain on Tierney because then you have a bit more options to play inside in more dangerous areas, I guess. Uh, and then against Chelsea, it was a bit weird. I think a lot of people felt like because McCarter has done quite well against Chelsea in the past, he would match their three at the back, but um, he didn't. So, <laughs> so we saw, I guess, just familiarities in Arsenal's play where it gets very lethargic and they're almost just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth without much happening. And I guess the most surprising element of that was the weakness being down Kieran side. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, there there is a plan, but it's way too too predictable and way too one dimensional. Mark, I think your question is nearly impossible to answer. That doesn't mean it's not completely valid to ask, because everybody you speak to and every assessment you make, you have a bit of all of those feelings. And that's probably the logical conclusion, that it is a bit of everything. I remember when things were going wrong under Mikel Arteta last season, and we talked about it on here. I felt that he needed to go back to a more pragmatic view, a horses for courses, look at the tools at his disposal, and just understand that it might take a bit longer for your vision to come to fruition. It might take multiple transfer windows and time with the squad to blend in together and just do what you need to do to get out of this mess. And I'm not for one minute suggesting that Mikel Arteta listens to our podcast, but he did seem to do that. The victory against Chelsea at the turn of the year, West Bromwich Albion away in the snow, and so on. And it worked until the latter part of the season as Arsenal got to the semi-final of the Europa League and it seemed like that was his chance and there were some mitigating circumstances around injury but it seemed that was his chance in his eyes to sort of flex his managerial acumen and he tried a few different things with Emile Smith-Rowe as false nine and Granit Xhaka at left back which had sort of worked against Sheffield United and Slavia Prague but it didn't work against Villarreal playing Thomas Partey as the holding midfielder on his own in the second leg of that European semi-final which was fairly disastrous and now I you sort just, of hang on you've just, you've just highlighted two good performances there but two of those uh, and two of those teams got relegated yeah, You've highlighted and, against West Brom and Sheffield United. Yeah, so this this is how embryonic I believe this project still is, in that they really 
while they are trying to overhaul the squad and mix young players with experienced players and recruit players and get rid of players, I think they have to go so basic and just maximise the tools at his disposal before looking to expand. And that brings me on to a, a sort of stronger dilemma that I'd like to put to the, the other guys. How long do you wait? How long do you point to the mitigating circumstances of injuries, of COVID, of all the difficulties that Mikel Arteta... I mean, it was very early for him to bring out the us-against-the-world type comments he made before the match, saying people are trying to break us. I'm not really sure they are. We're just kind of talking about the evidence in front of us. So Mikel Arteta is very highly regarded as a coach within the game. He clearly, as Art says, has an idea and a vision. It appears that whether it's his fault, the player's fault, or a bit of both even influence from executive change and instability off the pitch, it's not working for now. Arsenal are behind him. They've got this project, whether we like it or not. How long do you give that to come to fruition? I suppose I'll put a question back on you, which is what what are Arsenal good at at the moment? That's what I was thinking yesterday, watching them lose against Chelsea. What is that team good at? They don't defend well. The shape's not particularly good. They're not good at stopping balls, getting into the strikers' feet. They don't, they don't close off channels defensively. And it's not like the old Arsenal teams when, I suppose, the late Wenger teams that were a bit hapless defensively, but would create a lot of chances. They don't do that either. They don't entertain you. You get these these couple of sort of fleeting moments from Smithrow or Saka, where they dribble past someone or take someone on, where you think there's something there. There's something there with those individuals. But as a team, I, I, I don't know what they're good at. And, and I understand what what you guys are saying about there being a process or a project, but I, I don't know what the process, what this project is. I don't know what this team's trying to be. You know, when he first came in, I thought he was going to be a kind of Pep Guardiola prototype. I think that's what most people thought that because he'd worked with Pep Guardiola, would see that kind of football. That would be the end game. But the more the more I listen and, and, and listen to him speak and watch his team, I don't think that is what he's trying to be. I, I almost see more of a David Moyes ambition in terms of the style of football, and I don't mean that as a negative thing I mean that in the best sense of David Moyes teams in terms of the good Everton teams and good West Ham teams where you know you have a side that tries to be tight and takes chances when they come rather than a side that really dominates possession and untangles teams in the way that Pep Guardiola does and to your question on how long do you stick with him I think we're now entering a stage where it's almost unprecedented for a top a big six club as they would as they would like to be known to be sticking with such underperformance for what you know what is now getting on to two years with very few signs of palpable change and I don't think it's as though and you guys will know better than me but the people that I've spoken to around Arsenal aren't saying wow you know you need to understand what's going on behind the scenes what this guy's doing how he's inspiring the players you know a lot of the senior players, there's doubts about their future. I mean, even Xhaka this summer, who they've given a new contract to, looked like he was leaving for half the summer and now he's signed, now he's signed a new long-term deal. I look at players like Hector Bellerin. You know, what has happened to him? What has happened to him after, you know, for, he, he was someone that we were speaking about, Paris Saint-Germain, Man City, Barcelona, Juventus a couple of years ago. And just, just this stagnation that is happening with these senior players. And you could go on and on, but to extend that from what are Arsenal good at, what as a team, you then ask, what are Arsenal as a club good at? Are they good at buying players? Are they good at identifying talent? Are they good at shifting players that need to be sold? And at the moment, 
the answer to all these questions is no. And the, and this is the issue, I think, Art, here, in the fact that there can be all the attention on Mikel Arteta. If, I mean, it feels like we're replicating conversations we've had about other, other clubs over the last two years. But the head coach is just a cog in how a club is run. And therefore, this comes back to owners. It comes back to Edu, doesn't it, as head of recruitment? It comes back to, and we've discussed this before on the pod, I mean, they've had some very confusing hierarchical structures over the last three years of Arsenal. And probably it comes down to youth development as well. I mean, I don't know where... I mean, start with recruitment and the hierarchical structure, if you want, and then we'll come on to you, to the youth side later. Yeah, I think in terms of the the recruitment, I think especially in the since Mikel Arteta came in, there's already been two, I guess, different approaches that they've taken. There's been, I guess, the first approach, which was looking for short-term recruitment based on experience and needs of the squad. So you look at Pablo Mari uh, being Arteta's first signing, a left-footed centre-back that was, I guess, approaching his late 20s that could just slot into that, that role. But of course, he got injured, so they had to buy Gabriel a few uh, months later. And then Willian coming in after that, you've got that, I guess, the older bunch that they expected to add to the team in terms of not just footballing ability, but guidance as well. But that didn't work out. So now that they've already switched to looking towards the future in, you look at uh, the signings this summer, Albert Sambi, Laconga, Nuno Tavares, who's obviously going to be a backup, more of a backup to Kieran Tierney. Uh, Martin Erdegaard, Aaron Ramsdale and Ben White, they're all between 21 and 23 years old. So you can already see that shift in terms of recruitment, which... They've spent more than any other Premier League club this summer. Yeah. (laughs) I think that as well just shows how... Maybe wrong is the wrong word, but I'll just use it for lack of a better word but <laughs> do, how... do, do, you know, do, you, do you know what the thing is uh, um, like I'm speaking as, as a neutral I'm not, I'm not an Arsenal fan I'm speaking as a neutral they make neutrals despair watching them they make even as a, someone that doesn't support Arsenal you watch them play and they might they make you angry on on behalf of, of people who are watching passionately for Arsenal like yesterday when I mean that move down the right hand side which was clearly Chelsea's game plan to get Reese James free as the overlapping man it must have happened for or five times in the first half and and that is on Arteta you know it, fair enough if, if he's outwitted in the first stage of the game then they've got away with it why isn't he dealing with that how isn't he dealing with that why aren't the players on the pitch recognising that that's a problem and taking responsibility and saying if I'm getting sucked in then I need was it Saka on that side in front of him and maybe I need you to drop back and make that a five for a little bit just to t- just to tide us over and th- that wasn't happening so they lost the game yesterday because of that. They, that I think that was on the manager yesterday, um, despite what he said about the difference in quality, because ultimately it was it was a tactical advantage that, that won that game early on and, and got Chelsea clear. Yeah, there's no doubt that Arteta is not blameless in this. It's an unrecognisable team from what we saw in the FA Cup semi-final and final. Although they rode their luck at times in the season they won it in front of empty stadiums, they did play some really good, effective, confident football where everybody knew their roles. What I saw at Brentford on the opening night, which had some significant mitigating circumstances, equally had some fundamental flaws. And I remember just watching on around 70, 80 minutes when Tavares came on for his debut 
a left back playing at right back and by which point Brentford was sort of streaking through Arsenal's midfield and I just thought what on earth is going on here even a depleted side they against a promoted side who they should be getting a result against they just look completely off the pace the intensity a bit bedraggled if truth be told and I don't know if that smacks of a lack of confidence of far from ideal preparation of not fully understanding the instructions of being wearied by the relentless instructions being given to them by the sidelines maybe a bit of everything but if I take it back to Mark's point on the recruitment and I don't want this to be perceived as a criticism because most of us are not in a position to know precisely what's going on on the inside and all of the factors for and against but when you look at the successful clubs they don't tend to have one person running the show, an all-powerful recruitment person. They they have a number of people who are trusted and are experienced and are proven. I name all of the clubs in towards the top of the Premier League and, and even lower down, and many of them on the continent as well. Arsenal, after the de- departure of Ivan Gazidis, and then the, de- uh, the departure of Sven Mislintat, they placed Raul Sanlehi at the head of everything. He had a more commercial background, although he had been heavily involved in football and had a strong contacts book. He was in charge of everything to do with football. And there was a head coach in Unai Emery to train the team. Raul Sanlehi leaves, Unai Emery leaves, Mikel Arteta comes in, Edu is now technical director. I don't know of any football expertise around him. There's some really top recruitment and analyst people in the background, but very much his junior. He he is at the top of that tree with no sounding boards at that level. And he himself has very little experience in European club football. None, actually, before he came to Arsenal. Only with the Brazil national team and Corinthians. Richard Garlick has come in from the Premier League. He, he's got a legal background and he's been heavily involved in all the transfers, contracts and, and, and that side of things. Vinay Venkateshwam is really top bloke, uh, chief executive, and works very much on the business and commercial, the club side. The Cronkies, no football experience on, on their part. Tim Lewis, the non-executive director, he's a fan of the club and a lawyer, no football experience there. So it's all on the shoulders now of this new regime, Arteta and Edu. Arteta having never been a manager before, never worked specifically in recruitment. And I think that is now being cruelly exposed and again I'm not blaming those two individually but if you look at any rival clubs if you can call them rivals they have a far more advanced and comprehensive and robust setup that Arsenal just don't have and I think that's one of the most significant contributory factors. What what, what I would say I suppose just to be slightly in Arsenal's defence particularly about this summer's transfer window is when you finish eight two seasons in a row it limits what you can do in the transfer market I think from a wages perspective more than a you can spend on transfer fees which you have to do but in terms of wages they couldn't get you know for example they could never go this summer and get Lukaku, Varane, Sancho those players, they're not in that market, I don't think, wages-wise. Correct me if I'm wrong. But in, if you're not in if you're not in the Champions League, you can't get those players. So then it becomes, okay, so what do we do? Do we go and get players who are experienced in the Premier League who are maybe coming towards the end of their career? Well, they tried that with like David Luiz and Willian, and it didn't really, it's not really worked out. So then you start thinking, okay, well, we we can't we can't overspend on players who are ready now. But maybe we can start doing these, you know, these young, talented players. And that's what they've done. And 
where I th where I think Arsenal in a really tricky position is it's really easy to identify problems at the club at the moment. It'd be very hard, you know, if if any of us were to sit down now and say, let's make a plan for the next 12 months to make Arsenal successful by May. And I do have sympathy with that. Like that is going to whoever you are, whichever manager is there, that's going to take time. But and this this is the but I've not seen evidence since Mikel Arteta has come in that he is going to be the man that that, that does that for the club. Whilst I think you know Adam Adam's right and and David's right, this isn't an easy situation. Art. Some of it might have been brought on be of their own making. There, there will be there will be Arsenal fans who go, well, okay, th this isn't easy, but here are two examples of is there really joined up thinking and is is this being done the right way? The first being get rid of Emmy Martinez a year ago because he wants to be number one, and then pay thirty two million to bring Aaron Ramsdale in because you're not sure whether Burnley now is going to stay as number one, right? For, so people are wondering what what's what's gone on there in that 12 months then be ready to sell Xhaka to Roma don't get quite the offer you may correct me here if the, these details are, are, are wrong don't get quite the offer from Roma that you're expecting they won't meet your asking price so then give Granit Xhaka a new, a new contract I mean there are two things that from the outside you would go that doesn't appear particularly joined up thinking would that be fair I think from the outside that's fair but there is a lot of context like with so with the Emmy. Martinez situation you've got a goalkeeper who's played his way into a position of power it's very similar to the Joe Willock situation this summer where Martinez is in a place where he can demand the number one spot but up until that point it wasn't the Burt Leno of last season it was the Burt Leno who almost won Arsenal's player of the season the year before and was very key to keeping Arsenal afloat when Unai Emery was in charge and then almost steady in the ship when Mikel Arteta came in charge and I think that's where sometimes the, in that argument in particular the context is missing yes Martinez has gone on to impress at Villa and performed much better than Bert Leno and much more consistently than Bert Leno last season if you're just going to look at it from I guess a position of hindsight then that's where I guess the argument just becomes a bit too one-sided with that if you Look at the fee Arsenal got for Emmy Martinez as well. £20 million. I think at the time, everybody thought that was a very good fee, especially when you consider where he was in his career just, I guess, six months prior to that, where he wasn't even being used in the Europa League by Mikel Arteta. And I think that's where people maybe, yeah, they 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 would love to, to have seen Martinez stay for, that, for the reasons that obviously we've seen he's been a very good goalkeeper for Aston Villa. But they almost forget what position he was in before he left Arsenal and the position he played himself into was a position of strength for him not for the club and then for the second example which was Granit Xhaka so from my understanding there was a conversation between Arteta and Xhaka where almost like a gentleman's agreement if Roma met his market value they would allow him to leave but that didn't happen and I think where I understand surprise around the new contract but I don't really understand why people are so surprised about it considering how big a fan of Granit Xhaka Mikel Arteta is. I remember being at his first pre-match press conference in December 2019 and in that press conference he mentioned that he wanted to sign Granit Xhaka for Manchester City while he was a coach there and I think these are things it's easy to forget because 
you're not really thinking of them in the time. But then when you look at how he's used Granit Xhaka over the last 18 months and how integral he's been, he was Arsenal's most used outfield player last season, then it makes the decision less surprising to be honest and I think the main motivation behind the decision was protecting the value of course you can have debates and arguments as to whether his value would actually be protected because of his age he turns 29 next month I believe Uh, so (laughs) whether giving him a new contract is the right decision you you can debate that but there are examples in the past of Arsenal Cristiani, Olivier Giroud were in similar situations, they signed new contracts and within 12 months they were sold. So that's the kind of thinking there was behind the new contract, but whether they're able to sell him in that time period, I'm not sure because when you look at, especially Arsenal selling players, that has been one of their major weaknesses um, over the past few years. And you've seen that this summer with Joe Willock being their only sale. And that is because similar to Emi Martinez, he played himself into a position of power where he was actually an attractive acquisition for people. Most of the players they're trying to sell aren't necessarily that attractive in terms of what teams would want. So look at Said Kalasinac, Alexandre Lacazette, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, even though he's a promising player, these aren't players that most teams are, are going to be going for. Just look at the right-back position. I reckon you could get 10 Arsenal fans in a room and ask them who's starting at right-back next week. And you might get different answers from from all of them because you have four players who have really just sort of blurred into, unfortunately for them, because I think it's a shame because I think some of them in particular had real quality at certain stages, but Callum Chambers, Hector Bowen, Cedric Suarez, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, what are they all doing there? <laughs> and why are they all still still at the club? And th- that is... That is that is where I think, you know, for all we talk about long-term projects and stuff like that, that, that's where you're looking at people like Edu and saying, that needs to change. If this squad is going to move forward, that part of the club needs to become a lot more effective. So much I want to say about this, and the boys are absolutely spot on. I hope people are listening carefully. Let's just speak in facts, and I'll try and be as quick as possible. All right, em- Rafa. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get my notebook out. Um Emmy Martinez, without going over what Art said, Arsenal were left in a position. They had to sell him or they had to renew him to a new contract. He would only renew to a new contract if he was going to be made first choice. Arsenal couldn't commit to making him first choice, which is up to everybody listening this to debate. They That's an opinion. But there was no market for Bern Leno in the way that there was Emmy Martinez. And so they decided in that scenario, rather than lose him for free in a year's time by holding him to his contract and against his will as number two, he goes. And as Art said, they bought in some decent money for him. The Aaron Ramsdale signing this summer, it's not his fault what the price tag is. Um, We can debate that. We can debate where it should have sat in Arsenal's priority list. But they did need a second choice goalkeeper. They did need competition for Bern Leno and they do need a goalkeeper for the future which Mikel Arteta believes to be Aaron Ramsdale, clearly. And we've got no indication, and it's very unlikely, that Bern Leno is going to extend a deal that expires in 2023. There have been some suggestions that he he has wanted to go. On Granit Xhaka, there was no offer at Arsenal's level, which is what, what Art said there. There were many people during the Euros, when he was playing for Switzerland, who were saying, Arsenal need to put the asking price up even higher. He should be the first name on his on Arsenal's team sheet. So there's a bit of revision 
revisionism going on here. However, despite all of those mitigations, because these are incredibly hard decisions, I'll add one more in there, actually. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. When Arsenal sold him, everyone said good price. When he started doing well for Liverpool, they said bad price. When he got injured, they said good price. Now they're indifferent. So these things change with time. However, there is clear, muddied thinking from maybe Arteta's point of view on team selection and also the edu level, the executive level on recruitment. A year ago, they were bringing in somebody like Willian on a three-year contract to try and provide experience to help bring the young players on. Disastrous. And it's then flipped full circle where during the course of that season, the younger players were carrying the experienced ones. The contracts for Willian and Aubameyang so far haven't come to fruition. And so now it's all about the young players. That is not a clear chain of thought coming down. And then when you come onto the pitch with Arteta, the right back situation that Adam explains is is the best case study. Uh, but it's not the only one. One moment the club wanted Rob Holding to leave on loan for Newcastle. The next minute, Mikel Arteta was saying to him, you're not going anywhere. And he's since signed a new contract, which is probably sensible to protect his value. Pablo Mari was brought in as essentially a, a fourth choice central defender, two for each position. And now, by part design, part by bad luck with injuries and COVID, he's starting matches against the likes of Chelsea and, and I presume Manchester City next weekend. The right-back situation. One minute is Hector Bellerin, who's in possession. Next minute, Callum Chambers starts the opening game of the season with three right-backs on the bench. Nuno Tavares comes on as substitute, even though he's left-footed. And in the next match, Cedric, out of nowhere, comes in for an appearance. So I do think on and off the pitch, there is muddied thinking. But I do think there is some sympathy that's warranted in the market as well. Uh, we're going to talk Chelsea next on the pod, so um, this has been painful enough for you, Art. So uh, we'll we'll let you go before we inflict even more pain. You, you don't need to hear the Chelsea section. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for having me. I hope I brought some decent insight. <laughs> have you Have you found it cathartic? Have you Have you found uh, it like a like a session with with you know with a, a psychologist? Is that yeah happened? yeah? I wasn't on match duty yesterday, so this is right. the first time I've talked or. Mm expressed yeah. my thoughts since since the game so yeah uh it's, it's okay. been good <laughs> yeah you're, you're welcome back on our couch anytime <laughs> cheers thank you very much <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, we've covered the Arsenal side of things and let's turn to Chelsea where everything is a lot more positive. Uh, Liam Toomey, The Athletic's uh, Chelsea writer, joins us. Not far off a perfect afternoon, really, Liam. It was a very satisfying day for the Chelsea fans at the Emirates, I can tell you that much. They enjoyed themselves massively from chanting Champions of Europe to every every opportunity to serenading Romelu Lukaku um, every time there was a break in play. They they massively enjoyed themselves and I think Chelsea really enjoyed themselves on the pitch. Uh, they got absolutely everything they wanted against Arsenal, gave them very little defensively. It didn't look like uh, recent games between Chelsea and Arsenal. It looked a lot more like the Drogba Costa era games where one team is clearly 
a class above the other. And I think you saw two clubs as well as two teams on, on opposing trajectories. Did you deliberately pick Drogba and Costa to highlight those eras because of Lukaku? Yeah, absolutely. There, there were there were very much Drogba Senderos vibes in what he did to Pablo Marie. Uh, particularly in that first half, I thought, where Marie just couldn't do anything with him. Ended up going through the back of him and getting booked just before half-time. And yeah, Lukaku, I think, yeah, he made a big play this week at his unveiling, saying how much he developed his back-to-goal game under Antonio Conte at Inter. And they weren't just words. I think we saw that at the Emirates, that he, he was giving Chelsea so much as a focal point to build everything around they were working the ball around midfield and he was just standing with his back to, to Marie, arms outstretched, calling for the ball. It was almost disrespectful um, because he just, he, he so fancied his chances in that matchup. And as well as taking his goal really well, he could have had two, of course, great save from Leno in the second half. He created so much space for everyone else and his runs were really selfless. And, and it, I think what's ominous for the rest of the league is that that was based on five days of training at Cobham. This will only get better and it already looks like it's clicking. Is it a bit unfair given that Arsenal had won, what, the last three meetings between the two sides? Uh, They hadn't lost to Chelsea since December 2019 when Leno let that ball through his hands. Arsenal should have got a result from that as well. But are we looking at a Chelsea yet again and you just need to check the relative trophy halls between 2005 and now to see this, that are really the antithesis of Arsenal. They are everything that Arsenal kind of want to be on a consistent basis. They have a winning mentality, which we've said before, when you're around Cobham and Stamford Bridge, this this club, speak to people there, see the players, see how they work. It just oozes elite culture and they have to win. It's the requirement of Roman Abramovich. Their structure is set up to win. They do whatever it takes, even if that means managerial and player staff changes. And we are now seeing the latest incarnation of that with an unbelievable signing for unbelievable money, but it will work. And Chelsea, alongside the likes of Manchester City, Liverpool, maybe Manchester United too, are just in this elite bracket that at this point in time, and we know how quickly football can change, are just in a different stratosphere to Arsenal. Yeah, I think you were you were absolutely right to mention Abramovich because I think when you look at the different paths these two clubs have followed over the last 20 years, the the tone has been entirely set by ownership. You know, Arsenal were run the the previous board, you know, marketed themselves or presented themselves as kind of custodians of the club before they sold out to Kroenke. Kroenke has run it very much as a as an investment. Abramovich has has done the opposite. You know, he he has spent massively consistently with the sole goal to win and he's made unpopular decisions he's at times plunged the club into massive instability but it has always been with the singular aim in mind of keeping the trophies flowing and I think Arsenal some sometimes through necessity sometimes through you know philosophical choice by the people running the club have had to make different decisions and they and they've kind of sacrificed the pursuit of trophies for other things under Late later era Wenger, it was kind of more youth development and paying for the stadium. More recently, it's been it seems to have been this kind of very disjointed recruitment policy, 
political factions at the top of the club. I can't really tell what's going on with Arsenal now, but at Chelsea, there's this unity of vision, um, regardless of who the coach is almost, that is set by Abramovich, which is that only trophies are good enough. And when they do have a world-class coach like Thomas Tuchel, that means that all the conditions are there. And Lukaku is just the latest manifestation of that. Sorry, unity is an interesting word to use because I wonder, I mean, you look at that bench yesterday and it absolutely blows your mind, the quality that, that they have on the bench i don't want to be all doom and gloom about this but i suppose i am being with this question that the biggest challenge i'm guessing is how they how thomas tuchel keeps them all together during this season because there there aren't going to be many players there who are going to be satisfied with long spells on that bench and I, i wonder whether the last few days of the transfer window the second part is whether they're going to be trying to move a few on I think they will be trying to move a few on. They won't necessarily be the ones that were in the matchday squad against Arsenal. I think that is the core group. Now, Tuchel spoke of a group of you know 18 or so players that he'll be relying on this season. I do think you make a very fair point that we could probably get to the end of this season and particularly in the attacking positions, we could see two or three players looking to force their way out, depending on who wins and loses those battles for minutes. And at the moment, you're looking at it, the way the hierarchy sits, guys like Pulisic, Hudson-Odoi in particular, um, will be worried about the way things are looking. You know, Pulisic scored on the opening day, then he gets COVID. He can't get any sort of luck and, and has to set out this game. And Chelsea's front three looks really good in his absence. They didn't even play Werner until the final minute. So it's it's going to be difficult for these guys to get back in. The other side of it is that Chelsea will have an awful lot of games to play this season. They've got the Club World Cup in December as well. But at some point, as Tuchel the big games will come around and you have to make those those big decisions and disappoint people. Liam, before you joined us, we were talking at length about Arsenal's sort of muddled, muddied, cloudy thinking. And with Chelsea, it seems the opposite. Not always. We've talked about in one of the previous windows, this time last year, how they struggled to get players out, which was a legitimate difficulty, criticism, call it what you like. But this summer, Tammy Abraham, very brutal, clinical, and, and he's gone. Emerson loaned out. Zappa Costa on his way. We reported in the Monday column this morning that Kurt Zuma, verbal agreement with West Ham, 30 million euros, but it's stuck on personal terms. If that gets through, then it's very likely that they'll get a deal done for Jules Kunde. Bish, bash, bosh. That, and maybe I'll throw it over to Adam, is the way these top clubs tend to operate. Yeah, but it's easier when you've got top players to sell and players who have demonstrated over the last 18 months that they can cope in a side like Roma or West Ham or whatever. I think what's what what we've seen with Chelsea over the last 15 months or so is, is, is that whole thing of, for some people, a crisis is an opportunity. And that's what's happened if you're Chelsea or Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City, Manchester United to a certain extent. We've, with the pandemic, we fell into a situation where many of Europe's most famous clubs could not financially handle what, what came to them. And it became a moment of reckoning and a moment of weakness. For clubs like Chelsea, City, United, PSG, it's been the opposite. It's been a moment to pull away and to invest uh, and that's exactly what Chelsea have done. And I know I'm sure Liam will come back and point out the net spend, which is true, but you also need that financial strength behind you to make some of the down payments, when it, whether it comes to wages or fees that Chelsea have, that Chelsea have been able to do over the last 12 months. And that's and, and that's their credit. You know, they've made that strategic decision. And I think you know what we're seeing now. 
is not just the opportunity. You know, the only real competition for Chelsea across Europe this season, I think, will come from Manchester City, Liverpool, and Paris Saint-Germain. I think, I think they are now beyond everyone else in terms of the quality and depth of their squad. And as ever with Chelsea, the thing that will ultimately bring that momentum to its knees will be internal, because that's what happens at Chelsea when you have the demands of the winning environment that they have. It ends up eating itself. But I think with Thomas Tuchel, that, that you know they should have at least another really good season, and then we'll see what happens. And just quickly, Thomas Tuchel was a coach who was offered to Arsenal when Arsene Wenger was coming towards the end of his reign in 2018, but a final decision hadn't been made at that point. And the word that came back was that we've got a manager, so uh, we don't need to be having these conversations for now. He, Julie, moved to PSG. Arsene Wenger left. PSG's outgoing manager, Unai, came in, Unai Emery, came in and the rest is history. But I do think Thomas Tuchel would have loved to have managed... I know he would have loved to have managed Arsenal and embarked upon a project which you do get the opportunity to undertake at Arsenal. Uh, but their loss is Chelsea's game. He must have been gutted last night. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like the logical conclusion to years of Wenger nearly signed so-and-so. Cristiano Ronaldo, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Lionel Messi, Kylian Mbappe. Duh. Anyhow, back, back to the Chelsea section uh, <laughs> of the pod. I thought one of the interesting things, Liam, that, uh, that Tuchel said afterwards was that they didn't really give Lukaku any instructions for yesterday. And and they just said, you know, go and play. We, we want to see what you can do within this team. And the instructions, Tuchel said, would come later. So what will be interesting will be to see if Lukaku's role is any different next week when he comes up against Van Dijk and how Chelsea set up at Anfield compared to what Lukaku and and they did at the Emirates. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure Tuchel was being 100% forthcoming with that because the first goal Chelsea scored, they'd spent 15 minutes trying to score that goal, that particular goal with Lukaku coming short, laying the ball off switching it wide and, and the low cross. Uh, so there was definitely some sort of tactical preparation about how best to use Lukaku, but that will clearly become more sophisticated. I think the first few sessions at Cobham, Tuchel himself called it an overload week physically for Lukaku. They had to try and get him physically up to speed with the other players. And with 90 minutes, competitive minutes in his legs, that will only help. So there's probably a bit more room for um, tactical work this week leading into Liverpool. I suspect Virgil van Dijk will not be quite as malleable as Pablo Marie was in those same situations. Um, so that will be a very different challenge for Lukaku and for Chelsea. Well, also but- Liverpool have got Liverpool have got a midfield that that are not that will stick somebody in front of Lukaku to try and ex- to try and prevent the ball coming. I mean, now I feel a bit sorry for. I know we're coming back to Arsenal. I feel a bit sorry for Pablo Marie and all of this. Yes, he got absolutely ripped apart, but nobody helped him. Nobody stood in front of Lukaku. So you would imagine that Liverpool will stick, whether that be Henderson or Thiago or Fabinho, if 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 Fabinho is back. You know, there's there's double protection there. So that will be a mu- it will be a much more interesting tactical battle. There's there's something there. I think in terms of you know Chelsea. Chelsea's build-up play yesterday was really predictable. The only people that couldn't see it coming was Arsenal. Uh, and, and even when it kept happening, um, and uh, there will be pe- there will be teams that find out Chelsea in that in that respect. Not every team is going to let the ball go into Lukaku's feet, get it wide, let the cross come in, let them overload. The problem that, op- that I think opposition teams are going to have is the variety that Chelsea have. They can go right, they can go left, they can come inside with Mount or Havertz or Ziyech, whoever's playing. Werner can go in behind. Lukaku can, he- can head it. There's so much variety that I think they're going to be really tough to stop. 
But that, but the way we saw them score goals yesterday, that's not going to happen every week. Surely. No, but I think um, what we saw with Tuchel last year as well, albeit with far less kind of ruthlessness in the final third, was a kind of weekly tweaking of the way Chelsea were trying to score. That was clearly the the way they'd identified, you know, Arsenal's particular weak point. I was really surprised actually, final thing on Arsenal, because we we definitely need to move on, but I was really surprised Arteta didn't play the same system that he played at Stamford Bridge last season. Last season, they matched Tuchel's system 3-4-3, and it was a big part of why they were able to nullify Chelsea. With a back four, they had no chance of containing Chelsea's wing-backs, and the wing-backs, as much as Lukaku, killed them. I'll be interested to see what Liverpool do in that respect. Um, because it, Chelsea's width is a big part of how they play. But I could also see, you know, Tuchel doing what he did at Anfield last year and putting Timo Werner in and really threatening Liverpool's high line with that. You know, that was another thing he said about Lukaku after the Arsenal game was that he offers us the conventional target man things, but he's also fast enough to attack the space in behind. He's a unique package in that sense. And you could even play him and Werner together with a number 10 in behind. And then that would ask really serious questions of, of Liverpool because their their press would have to be spot on for Chelsea not to get the chance to hit those balls over the top. And, and actually on Saturday, I don't know how many people watched Liverpool against Burnley if you weren't Liverpool or Burnley fans, but Burnley were on the cusp four or five times, even with Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood of, of getting in behind that line. And it, I was watching that thinking, I'm not sure how, you know, this early on in uh, Van Dijk's re- return to the team, whether they are quite ready for what Chelsea will bring to them next week. I'm also intrigued, Liam, by how Chelsea will deal for the first time under Tuchel with a major full crowd and atmosphere in a clash against the team who they've got history with in that sense. Um, Because that does change the dynamic somewhat. And as much as it could get to Chelsea, it will raise Liverpool's level, you would assume, as well. Yeah, I actually thought that was a that was a factor at the start of the second half in the Arsenal game as well. When the rain came, the crowd got up. Chelsea were 2 0 up, but they weren't entirely comfortable, and the game could have switched if Arsenal had managed to take one of the chances that they got. That will clearly be magnified at Anfield because we all know what a big match atmosphere at Anfield is like, especially after so long without those fans having the opportunity to cheer their team on. So yeah, Chelsea will. We'll know what to expect, I think. But it will be an adjustment after a few months of being able to control games, almost in a training ground way under Tuchel. Having that crowd element, having that kind of anarchic factor, uh, the adrenaline factor kicking in will be an interesting variable for them to handle. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's just uh, finish with a, a few uh, transfer stories. Liam, stay here because, as David says, Zuma Zuma could go to West Ham and that would then bring Kunde in at, at Chelsea. And then as, as far as incomings are concerned, that would be Chelsea done, surely. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, you know, 
lots of fans are still asking if they'll go and sign a fourth midfielder. We're not hearing a great deal on that front at the moment. I think partly because it's a difficult pitch to give to signings. <laughs> Do you want to come in and, and sit behind Kante, Jorginho and Kovacic? They couldn't even persuade Billy Gilmore to take that job. So yeah, Kunde will probably be the last of the incomings. They're, they're also keeping around Trevor Chaloba. You know, we reported that last week. That's that's a Tuchel decision. So I think add that all up and the, and the squad is big enough as it is. Elsewhere... David, you've got uh, Eddie Nketiah could be leaving Arsenal. Yeah, and you know we've talked enough about Arsenal, so let's flip it to Crystal Palace, who are the team who are interested in taking him, or one of the teams, but most sort of intensely right now. Um, they're prepared for what's sort of described to me as a £10 million take-it-or-leave-it type offer. Arsenal are well documented to want £20 million for him. There was some conversation when they were signing Ben White from Brighton that Nketiah might go in the opposite direction, but at that point Arsenal wanted to keep Nketiah and tie him down to a new contract, which he has rejected. So they've got a big decision on their hands. Do they sell this summer or do they face losing him for a free in the summer of 2022? So can some compromise be reached? And of course, Patrick Vieira is still looking to um, strengthen his Palace side. They've already made a load of signings. They've faced the same two teams that Arsenal did in their first two games, losing to Chelsea. They drew with Brentford but they also haven't scored a goal so that'll be an interesting one to watch I think there's a German team after him as well who have had a couple of approaches rejected Um, and there could be a knock-on effect because if Arsenal do cash in on Nketiah they would surely need to bring in a, a new attacker and maybe that money would help them in whatever pursuit they might be taking and they need to do something in attack because they haven't scored yet they've been stripped of Aubameyang and Lacazette Balogun played his first league start at Brentford and um, they desperately need goals. Um, And we've done a whole podcast without mentioning Harry Kane, which must be the first time I've done that in about six months. Or Manchester United, Mark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anything, anything on Kane? No, it's not changed to my knowledge. No, No, it's, um, there's an, there's an impasse. Manchester City uh, don't want to budge from their stance and feel that Tottenham need to, do something to make this deal happen. Clearly Tottenham feel the opposite, that Manchester City need to make the moves and and come to their valuation and nothing has changed. So it's a gridlock and let's see if it changes before the deadline on the night of the 31st of August. Um, Right, well, as we said to Art, you're going to have a lie down as well, David. That was was obviously painful. Uh, So Liam, thank you. Adam, thank you uh, to read all the articles. Uh, we've discussed today, including David's Monday column, just head to theathletic.com slash footballpod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Dan Bardell and Flo Lloyd-Hughes here tomorrow taking a deep dive into one story on The Athletic and then I'm back on Thursday on this feed with the Business of Sport podcast. Bye for now. The Athletic. <laughs>